Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. In this show, we discuss topical foreign policy issues. I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career, often with digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. And we cover often overlooked issues in global affairs. If you want to learn more, visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now on with the show. So I've done a few episodes now on the conflict in Yemen, its causes and consequences. But for today's episode, I wanted to explore a different way to understand the crisis in Yemen, and that is through shipping containers. Yemen has two main ports, Hodaida to the north on the Red Sea and Aden to the south on the Gulf of Aden. Of those two ports, Hodaida is by far the bigger one, but it is under control of forces aligned with the Houthi rebels, whereas Aden is controlled by forces aligned with the internationally recognized government of Yemen. And that government is supported by a Saudi-led coalition, and that coalition has control over the airspace and sea lanes coming in and out of Yemen. Needless to say, this complicates goods getting in and out of Yemen, and the politics and logistics of sending shipments to Yemen by sea I think, offers key insights into the dynamics of this conflict and why Yemen is experiencing such a profound humanitarian crisis. Indeed, it is one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world today. My guest, Scott Paul, is the humanitarian policy lead at Oxfam America. He recently returned from a fact-finding trip to the port of Aden and some of its surrounding towns. He wrote about that experience in a piece on the website Just Security, and I'll post a link to that on the website. And after reading his piece, I knew that I had to get Scott back on the show. We kick off discussing some background to the conflict briefly before diving into a longer and very interesting conversation about shipping containers. And after listening to this episode, I think you will likely agree with me that the experience of shipping containers offers some explanatory power for understanding the conflict in Yemen as a whole. A couple of quick notes before we begin. Uh, I still have about seven Global Dispatches podcast stickers. If you'd like a sticker, please leave a review on iTunes, then send me an email, and I'd be happy to send you one of those stickers. And if you want one, please do so quickly before they run out. And as always, if you have suggestions of topics I should cover or people I should interview, send me an email, and you can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I always love hearing from you guys, so, so don't hold back. Feel free to email me anything that's on your mind. All right, now here is my conversation with Scott Paul of Oxfam America. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, the coalition controls all of Yemen's airspace uh, with the consent of the government of Yemen. And so it's not just the UN flights, but they approve the manifest on all flights uh, in and out of the country. And you might remember, I was actually, I was in Yemen, um, in Sana'a, when flights, uh, commercial flights to Sana'a were suspended. But even at the time that was happening, um, the Yemeniya flights that were coming in and out um, would have to stop in Saudi Arabia so that the plane could be inspected and so all the passengers could be approved. So there's no one that gets into Yemen these days that that isn't approved by the coalition. And, and we should say, by the coalition, you're referring to the Saudi-led coalition that has been prosecuting this war in Yemen against Houthi rebels since 2015. Before we go any further, can you just briefly describe the origins of the war? I know you and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but for those who are kind of coming into the situation with you know moderate or, or low information, can you describe just briefly uh, the roots and the trajectory of this conflict. Yeah, yeah, it's a good idea, although it's a bit dangerous to ask a yeah, humanitarian. We, we, to, we won't get uh, too deep in, into the weeds <laughs> here because there's other aspects yeah. of your trip to Yemen that I want to uh, discuss in depth. But right. before we do, just sort of set the scene, if you might. And I'm sure, and, I'm, and I, the, the, the true Yemen experts around me will, will probably chastise me for not talking about the decades and centuries that preceded this flare-up. Um, but in short, and I should, um, can I just interrupt you there? I had like a year and a half ago, uh, a true (laughs) Yemen expert who discussed like the centuries deep roots of this conflict. But (laughs) for, for our purposes, let's kind of do the uh, explainer version of this. That sounds, that sounds fascinating. I might have to go listen to that. Um, this, this version probably starts in 2011, 2012 when, um, former, the late former president Ali Abdullah Saleh was deposed by uh, a revolution. There was a transition process in which a government was uh, was appointed and internationally recognized. And then there was uh, a series of conferences to get grassroots input. The Houthis are a group that are based in the north that didn't like where this was going, had long running um, grievances against the central government, um, and essentially took the opportunity to displace the central government first from Sana'a, then from Aden, in 2015, um, in what's widely seen as a, a coup d'état, and when that when when the government was finally pushed out of Aden in March 2015, um, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and a number of other countries announced that they would uh, intervene militarily to restore the internationally recognized government of Yemen um, and fight a conflict against not only the Houthis but their former adversary. Um, late former president Ali Abdullah Saleh. And um, things have changed. The conflict has splintered and fragmented substantially since then. There are um, scores of parties to the conflict, each looking out for their own interests, fighting local battles um, for local and national objectives. Um, But the underlying dynamic uh, of, of the conflict remains, which is there's an internationally recognized government that's not in power um, and there is an international Arab coalition that has united to restore uh, that government ruled by force. And that uh, 
the government that is the sort of de facto power of most of Yemen is in control of Sana'a, which is the capital, and areas in the northern part of the country mostly. Um, but you uh, were able to access government-controlled territory or, you know, the, the de jure government, uh, the internationally recognized government-controlled territory in, in Aden. Can you um, just sort of describe a, a little bit about uh, what the, the city was like to you sort of through your eyes as a humanitarian? Yeah, and before I do that, though, Mark, I, I, I need to co- complicate things even further because nothing in Yemen is simple. Um, Aden is considered government-controlled territory, but um, between 2015, when the Houthis were pushed out, uh, and this year, um, that it was controlled by some troops that were loyal to uh, for, uh, current president Hadi um, and the government of Yemen, but also, number one, backed by the force of the United Arab Emirates, and then also um, supported and associated with other forces who um, have sort of formed alliances of convenience um, and pledge allegiance to the government of Yemen, even though they're seen to be um, somewhat independently operating. So the question of who's in control um, and where is government-controlled territory is generally really complicated in Yemen. And that, w- that was complicated further earlier this year um, when the southern resistance, which has really formed a lot of the, the military force over the past few years in Aden and, and the surrounding areas, um, essentially um, announced that it was taking power for itself. And so now there's a southern transitional council um, that uh, is governing Yemen. Um, they, they say that they are still they still recognize generally the authority and legitimacy of the internationally recognized governments. Um, but the sort of lowercase capital, the lowercase G government um, of Prime Minister Bin Dagger, they, they um, have issues with and they are administering security. So it's so, basically like a, a splintering of authority. Uh, yeah, that's and, happening. That that often accompanies like civil wars in, in general. You know, the longer civil wars tend to drag on, the more that you have these factions and splinters that tend to occur. I mean, you, you saw it in in neighboring Syria as well. So there's no like clear delineation between um, who is on on what side uh, necessarily. Hundred percent. Um, so to your, to yeah, your question. Yeah, so 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 tell is, me about yeah, your your sort of what uh Aden and its surrounding areas that you visited looked like to you as uh, a humanitarian worker. Well, uh I should start by saying Aden is a beautiful city. It's really beautiful and picturesque. It's right on the beach. It has this incredible natural harbor. Um there's uh despite the slowdown in economic activity a real buzz of, of street life throughout the city. Um, but there's some contrasts embedded in that because the city is still showing the marks of the 2015 conflict um, when the Houthis came down and invaded and then were repelled. Um, buildings are destroyed. A lot of buildings are partially destroyed. It doesn't appear that a lot has been rebuilt from that time. And I spoke with someone who said that there's more than 200 businesses that were destroyed or uh, who, whose business had to stop in 2015 that haven't begun, have, haven't resumed their operations. Um, and so there's, there's a real sense, a palpable sense that um, even though the Southern Transitional Council is in power, even though it's a, an area that recognizes the legitimacy of the government of Yemen, um, that this 
life hasn't picked up yet to the point where it was before. And, and, and whatever this new normal is, we're still there. We haven't gotten back to the status quo ante. Mm-hmm. So um, at the same time, there's you see um, you see fruit in markets. You see people going to restaurants um, because there is a class of people who live in the cities, um, specifically the bigger cities, that um, that can afford to um, pay these higher prices for food and higher prices for daily household items. So there's a lot of activity, um, and it's an incredibly beautiful place. Um, but it's it's a place that even wealthier or middle class, the the small the small group of middle class people I spoke with um, would say is is struggling under the burden of the war. And, you know, one thing that, that, um, came through to me in, in reading your reflections that you wrote in just security, and I'll, I'll post a link to that is normally just like how pervasive, um, the economic effects of the conflict are even in places like Auden today, where there is not like an active hot shooting war happening. Uh, yet the, um, the, the economic burden of the war throughout the country is felt very sharply by, by people in, in Auden. Um, and one reason of this and, and something that I've really found interesting about your reflections is how the shipping container industry and shipping containers in general can help explain the Yemen civil war. So just to, to take a step back, can you explain sort of the port of Aden, its relationship to shipping containers, and also um, how that relationship intersects with that of the port of Hodaida, which is a, a much larger port in, in the country as well, but one yeah. that is currently not under control of, uh, of an area that the internationally recognized government uh, holds? Yeah, Margaret, um, I... The, the number of things I've become um, a poor expert at <laughs> in the humanitarian field is as long as my arm. Um, shipping and, and port operations is now one of them. Uh, before I talk about the port, though, you said something that's really important that I, I want to stress for listeners of this podcast. And I, you know, before we were before we went live, we were talking a bit about what this could be titled, and we were talking about container shipping. But you said something that really resonated with me about how people perceive the war in Yemen or, or generally how people perceive life in conflict. And I feel like another really good title, not just for this podcast, but for any podcast about Yemen is that war is people is war is war is killing people quietly. And when people see headlines about the war in Yemen, usually it's triggered by um, a major event, some spectacular attack that results in you know, tens of, of civilian casualties, people died, people who were wounded. And that's, that's happening in Yemen, 100%. And it's incredibly tragic for the people who are affected. But at the same time, every time I see one of those headlines, or one of those stories, um, I get a little bit disappointed that that's the predominant image uh, for people in the United States and around the world about what life is like in Yemen. Um, most people um, aren't worried about dodging bombs. Certainly people in Sana'a are concerned about the daily effects of airstrikes. But even in Sana'a, um, and certainly all around the country, what war looks like to people isn't, um, isn't just landmines and exploding shells. 
Um, it's ever higher prices. It's impossible choices. Um, it's it's security concerns that people don't think about, um, like for women, the escalation of domestic violence or the challenge of of going out to fetch supplies um, in insecure areas or or in undergoverned areas. So um, I'm always really keen to to emphasize that and draw that point out. Should we talk about Should we talk about the port, or do you want Do you want to um, yeah, stay let, there for a minute? Well, let's let's talk about the port because it's all connected, right? I mean, yeah. the the ability of people to eat is directly tied to the ability of of food imports to pass through the major ports of Yemen. Um, exactly. One of those ports, and and I should I should stop there. It's something I've I've seen the statistics cited before, but something like. 80% of all of Yemen's food is is imported and yeah. like you know 70% of all those imports come through the port of Hodaida. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so for starters, right. Yemen Yemen is hugely dependent on imports. I think it's about 90% of its food and and now 90% of its fuel um, is coming from overseas. And um, so any any changes to the process through which those commodities come in is going to have incredible reverberations at a household level. And for the past three years or so, um, Yemen has been subject to what we've called a de facto blockade. Um, I'm glad we've called it only a de facto blockade because for a period of two months in November and most of December, the Saudi-led coalition imposed a full blockade where it said nothing is coming in any of these ports um, and then only uh, nothing is coming in some of these ports. Um, but in the rest of that period, essentially, um, the, it's, it's been like death, death by strangulation. Um, the coalition has set up regime first to make vessels wait, then to clear them, then to inspect them, depending on the commodity and where they're going. Um, and all of these delays and all of these uncertainties about the outcome um, have massively increased the price of goods. Just because sitting offshore, um, not knowing whether you're going to be able to bring your ship into port is incredibly costly for the importers. And that cost gets passed along. Um, so can, can you maybe just like walk me through what the um, path is or what the story is of a shipping container uh, that's leaving, you know, say, I don't know, like Dubai or Dubai maybe is, is not the best example, yeah. but some, some major port in the area that has some goods, uh, destined for Yemen. Yeah. What is that process? So it depends, it depends on the commodity. And I think, um, you know, Hadeda right now is importing food and fuel, which are critical, critical commodities. And if that goes away, um, all of the whole of Yemen is in trouble. But um, so just to, to get into the process, um, I spent some time in the Aden Free Zone, which is the, the container port uh, in, in the city. And for about five and a half months, the Saudi-led coalition has closed completely to any cargoes um, the container port of Hodeida. So if you're bringing something in to the port of Hodeida in a container, um, and in case people don't appreciate what a container is, basically it's, um, it's a standard giant box that that um, is of a standard size that gets put stacked onto um, big uh, shipping vessels and then taken out of the port and slopped on a truck 
and then distribute it. And there's a global system for tracking these containers. And once you empty one, then you put something else in and people are keeping track of where containers are all, all over the world. It's amazing. Um, but but with, with containerized shipping um, shut down in Hadata, that means Adden is the only port for container shipping. So if you've got anything that isn't fuel um, or isn't liquid, and if you've got anything that isn't um, bulk or break bulk cargo, so what that means is stuff that just comes out on mass, which you then process or bag on the on the K at the at um, at the port, it's going into a container. So it's most consumer goods. Mm-hmm. So with all that background, um, you want to ship a container from Singapore to Aden because it's the only container port in Yemen. Um, you put the container on your ship, you arrange all the permits, you get uh, credit and finance for it. Um, you ship to Aden, and then you have to wait. First thing uh, that happens is, um, well, the first few things that happens are, one, um, you have to get permission from a, a UN process that's been set up. It's called the UN Verification and Inspection Mechanism. The brief backstory about UNVIM, as it's called, is it was set up because um, the coalition and the government of Yemen wanted confidence that the uh, the ships coming into Yemen weren't bringing weapons for the Houthis. Um, and it was set up specifically for those Red Sea ports. Okay, so that's done. Um, usually takes um, about 24 hours, sometimes up to 72 hours. Um, so that's done. You also need um, deconfliction. So basically... It, it means basically that um, someone in Riyadh is saying um, this is this is not this is not conflict related. We're not like gonna, don't bomb uh, this ship. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It has like plastics or something, you know, or some some sort of consumer <laughs> good. It has you know, plastic right. bags or something like that. Yeah. So that's two. Um, then you you sit in a, a waiting area for a while, it's called a holding area, for some indeterminate period of time. The objective of which is not totally clear to me. Um, then at some point you apply to the government of Yemen Ministry of Transportation to have your um, your containers cleared to be imported. And that also takes an indeterminate amount of time, sometimes days, sometimes longer. Um, because what happens is the, the request is immediately forwarded to the government of Saudi Arabia. And after that indeterminate period of time, there's, there's essentially two answers. One is approved and two is rejected. But what's important to bear in mind is that even if you have 100 containers on your ship and one of those containers has a prohibited item, um, then everything is rejected. So what are the prohibited items now? Well, they're not published. Um, there is a sort of a working list that people in the port of Aden have. Um, it consists of things like batteries, solar panels, um, used cars, um, another one is, is spare parts for mechanics. Uh, it's not totally clear, and it varies by the day. Sometimes those things come in, sometimes other things get kept out, and the uncertainty itself is really costly. And, and presumably those things are banned because the Saudis think that they have like dual use. They could also be used for like you know military purposes, or that's not even clear. Potentially. Um, I don't, I don't want to speculate too much on the, mm-hmm. on the motives, yeah. um, but that, that's a possibility. So anyway, so you're, you you get this response back, and, and and the response is container 23 has some batteries in it, so your application is rejected. Well, now you have to go and reapply 
for the other 99 containers once you've gotten that container off your ship, right? So then you're then then you're in that holding and waiting pattern again. So let's say you finally get approved for those 99 containers. Your next step is to ship all of your cargo to Jeddah, where there's an in-person inspection in Jeddah. So that which is in time. Saudi Arabia, we should say, which, which is, is Saudi not Arabia. in Yemen. Yeah. Right. You're still right. not there yet. But then, you know, let's say that's done. You're still not done. Because then when you're finally given clearance to ship your containers to Aden, there is a team of 50 Yemenis supervised by 12 Saudis and Emiratis that are going to go through those containers all over again. And that's going to take time. So all of this time hugely adds up. Right. And, and every day that those goods aren't being delivered to a retailer or a corner store um, or convenience store, bodega, or, uh, <laughs> whoever's selling these goods, um, it's it's more reals for the, the household that isn't earning any. Mm-hmm. Basically, all of these delays have the effect of increasing the prices of all these goods and people in Yemen aren't getting paid to start with. So this is just compounding uh, a, a sort of household financial crisis that is replicated throughout the country. Exactly. And you've got inflation and you've got the uncertainty of what exactly is allowed to be brought in. So some shippers are just deciding, nuts to this, I'm shipping to Jizan in Saudi Arabia. It's another port. It's got another market. Um, you know, it costs $2,000 to ship a container from Singapore to Aden. I can ship that container to Jazan for seven or eight hundred. Sounds like a better deal for me. Um, so, um, so, so the the revenue at the port of Aden, which again I want to stress, is a government of Yemen controlled port, or I should say, a Southern Transitional Council controlled port, um, jointly with the coalition, and they are losing a huge amount of money, and goods are become goods coming through there are are becoming much more expensive because of coalition interference and restrictions. Well, can, can I ask, um, like, what's the the logic in sort of punishing the uh, government-controlled areas as a, um, with, with these sort of onerous restrictions, as opposed to just, like, punishing the Houthi-controlled areas, like the port of, of Hodeida, which they, they already do? Um, but why would the uh, Saudis impose all these restrictions over imports to areas that are ostensibly under the control of forces they back. Yeah, you got me. Um, I, I, I wouldn't even presume that the purpose is punishment. Um, I have a really hard time reconstructing what the rationale might be. Um, the, the one thing I, I will say is that these are ships that no one is alleging is are, are responsible for the importation of weapons. Um, I mean, if, if these items are feared because they're dual use, fine. Um, you know, publish the list, ask uh, the United Nations uh, process to inspect for it, fine. But, I mean, there's actually, there's no allegation that this is, the, the, the Saudis are making a really, really big deal about the possibility of um, importation of ballistic missile components uh, to the Houthis, in particular from Iran. Um, but no... No one, including the Saudis, are alleging that they're coming in on these big commercial uh, shipping vessels. Um, so, so, no idea. You said earlier, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that um, containers are not permitted in the port of Hodaida. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. and and that's a much larger port. We should point out. 
Uh, yeah, they what, were before half a year ago. It's a new policy. And and sort of what is coming in and out of of Hodaida then? So Hodaida, as far as I know, still is receiving um, bulk and break bulk cargo, like big um, humanitarian shipments. And it's possible that some. I need to check on this. I'm not sure if humanitarian vessels are bringing in containers, but um, commercial containers are definitely, definitely out. Definitely not. Okay. Um, and then. But you can import grain there, and you can import fuel there, um, and you can import other food. And the grain, and I mean, fuel is probably the single most important uh, commodity in Yemen because um, expensive fuel makes everything else more expensive um, because of transport costs and refrigeration um, and electricity. Um, but food is also critical because. Um, Aden doesn't have and will never have the capacity to import more grain. Um, and I went over this pretty thoroughly. There are, there are seven gigantic silos and mills at the port of Hodeida and an entire distribution network that's sort of formed around those uh, that infrastructure. And in Aden, there's three small privately held silos with, with mills attached. And there's just nowhere on the quay to build more and it would take forever. So it's just not there's there's no other way to bring grain more grain than is coming through at right now. Mm -hmm. And so Hodaida is the most important port for food supplies throughout the country. Yeah, for food, for fuel, and if if it were taking containers, also through containers. So I guess just kind of stepping back, what does um, shipping containers tell you uh, about the the conflict in Yemen? One. It's really, really hard to discern the motives of the parties because, like you said, it's you try to figure out why um, the coalition's processes is making life harder on uh, officials in the South and on people living in the South. Um, secondly, that everything is more expensive because of the, the complications regarding imports. Um, third, one thing we haven't talked about is, and this I think maybe undercuts one of the assumptions we've been sort of talking around before, just because something is imported through Aden doesn't mean that it's going to benefit the people of Aden or the people in the south of Yemen. Um, one of the really interesting things that I heard in a couple of different meetings with, with um, the business community and with people at the port is that about 80% of all of the cargoes that come into Aden end up going north. And so the, it's, it's not as if, um, you know, there is a Houthi port and a government port. Um, there, there may be people administering those ports uh, associated with the different parties. But once things come into Yemen, it's in the Yemen market. And the Yemen market has its own rules um, governed by the country's political economy. And, you know, shutting off the spigot at one port isn't going to, in my opinion, um, fundamentally upset that balance uh well scott this is uh very helpful and i think it's like a really useful framework in which to kind of understand the uh, entire yemen civil war so thank you thank you for, for your time yeah. this, this was explanatory it's my pleasure i love talking about this stuff it's horrific and tragic um but i i really do think that the the more people understand how interlinked um, how interlinked Yemen's economy is uh, uh, with 
the import mechanisms at the different ports and how they're interlinked with each other, uh, we're more likely to see an import regime that's going to benefit all of the people in Yemen. So thanks for having me on to explain this. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Scott. That was helpful. Um, Like I said, that was, I think, a unique and interesting and useful way of uh, approaching the conflict in in Yemen. Um, Not something, uh, not kind of content I think you'd get anywhere else in the podcast world. So if you uh, appreciate that, then show me your love by leaving a review on iTunes or or better yet, becoming a premium subscriber and supporting uh, the show financially, which is always very helpful. Helps me keep the lights on around these parts. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.